This evening I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. Mark 1, verse 21. And I will be reading through verse 28. Mark 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May I ask you please to keep your Bibles open to our text for this evening. Just this short paragraph, this one episode in the early portion of Jesus' public ministry. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read through the gospel account of Mark, it is important to ask yourself two questions at all times. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And secondly, what has he come to do? Why is he doing this? Now, those are very simple, straightforward questions. Uh, question that a child could answer in one sense, and yet there is something profound about those questions. They're not quite as simple as they might appear at first glance. Think about this, for example. Regarding the question, who is Jesus? There are all sorts of answers that people gave. They heard his teaching. They witnessed miracles. And they said, he's a prophet. He's a healer. He's a man of God. Others would say, well, he's Joseph and Mary's son, isn't he? He's that, that young man who grew up in, in Nazareth, right? We know him. And sometimes they said worse things, far worse things. He's of the devil. And then what has he come to do? Has he come simply to perform miracles? Has he come simply to teach? The answer we'll see is no. Those are merely pointers to something much greater, grander. Something far more profound 
And in fact, it builds upon what is said earlier in chapter 1 at verse 15, where Jesus pronounces this statement, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when you think of these stories, these narratives, they are part of a larger story, a broader narrative concerning the kingdom of heaven, promised long ago, promised already in the Garden of Eden, that God would send a servant, the seed of the woman, and he would bring salvation to his people. And we see in our text this evening that he does so with authority. Did you notice that? That was a thing that made the people marvel in the synagogue. Such teaching, such miracles, and with authority. Let's look tonight at that authority. First of all, as authority is recognized by the audience in the synagogue, secondly, as that authority is opposed, challenged by the demon-possessed man, and then thirdly, that authority demonstrated through the miracle performed by Jesus on that occasion. So they traveled to Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee. It is really the headquarters of their northern ministry, Jesus and his disciples. It's a city that Jesus knows well, and yet it is one which repeatedly rejects Jesus. One thing you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark is the pacing of the narrative. There is this frenetic pace of Mark's Gospel. Did you notice already, just in our text tonight, the indication of that, the clue to that? Twice we hear the word what? And immediately... It's as if the, the narrator can't wait to get to the next point, the next place in the narrative. And immediately they do this, and immediately this happened. And as you read this gospel account, you will notice that a significant portion of the gospel of Mark is devoted to the final two weeks of Jesus' public ministry. In other words, everything has been has been heading towards the cross at a frenetic pace. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He enters the synagogue. He still maintains the practice of the Jews in that day. He's not near to the temple, so they go to the synagogue. And it was the custom in that day that any man who could enter the synagogue could lead in a reading of scripture and even a a brief meditation upon it, an exhortation. And when Jesus speaks on the word, when he ministers the word, the response of the people is what? Amazement. Awe. Boys and girls, listen carefully. It's not simply that they saw or they heard something spectacular. Because mixed in with that awe and that wonder is a sense of fear. The fear of hearing something, seeing something you've never encountered before. 
This man is not like anyone we've heard before. When he speaks, when he preaches from the word, he does so in a way that is so unlike the scribes of our own day. How is that? I don't think it was simply that Jesus had more charisma. There was more of his personality that came out as he spoke. That he was engaging in that sense. Back in Jesus' day, there was a clear distinction between his teaching and that of the scribes. The scribes had this long history of rabbinic teaching, and when they taught, they would say often, well, this is what Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so said that, and Rabbi so-and-so said that. That long tradition. And here comes Jesus on the scene. Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your hearts. And after that sermon, the people responded by saying, with what authority? He speaks. But there's yet another element involved. Not only is Jesus saying, I speak with this authority, my authority, over against this long rabbinic tradition. Jesus will also say throughout his ministry that the scriptures are pointing to me. He will have the audacity to say, someone greater than the temple is among you. Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. I am the light of the world. He who believes in me should never walk in darkness again. He makes these statements, these proclamations, as if to say, don't you understand all of the scripture?" All of the scripture is pointing to me. It is fulfilled in me. I have come to bring it to its consummation. And the point is, the people, when they hear that, they recognize that. And they are fearful. Again, think of those two questions. Who is Jesus? We know that the people, we know that the disciples had their own expectations of who the Messiah would be. And it was a far cry from what Jesus actually proclaimed and what Jesus actually brought to the world. They wanted a political figure. They wanted someone who would overthrow the Romans. They had visions of grandeur and power and might and riches. (laughs) And here Jesus says, Give it all away, and you will store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. What? This is the Messiah who's going to bring deliverance. And later on in that gospel account, he will talk about the fact that the Son of Man must suffer. Suffer at the hands of wicked men, and even die. And it's not simply that the disciples, when they heard that, thought, well... 
Okay, that makes sense with what we've read in Scripture. No, they say, it cannot be that way. In fact, Peter has the the nerve to confront Jesus and say, no, he rebukes him. No, it can't be that way. It's not the kind of Messiah we asked for. That's not the kind of Messiah that was promised. Oh, yes, it was. What has he come to do? He has come to bring the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, dear friends. Make no mistake tonight. Do not believe those who will tell you that Jesus offered a kingdom. That kingdom was rejected and so Jesus said, well, I guess I'll go to plan B. I'll suffer, I'll die, I'll ascend to heaven and then we'll come again. I'll come again at the end of the ages and then I will establish my kingdom. No, Jesus here is establishing his kingdom. It is a kingdom with authority. He is a Messiah with authority. And that's first of all recognized. But then secondly, that authority is challenged. That authority is opposed. Notice again that construction, verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now maybe if we were in a smaller group I'd ask for a show of hands. What strikes you as odd about that description? And immediately there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Aren't you asking yourself, what's this guy doing in here? What is a guy with an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man, doing in a synagogue? Don't you want to ask that question? I want to ask that question. And I don't think the answer would be, oh, that's Crazy Joe. Crazy Joe always shows up at the synagogue. He's always one of those people that sit in the back. No offense to those of you sitting in the back tonight. Oh, that's Crazy Joe. No. This is a man with an unclean spirit. Most, if not all of you, have read the Gospel of Mark enough to know that confrontation with those who are demon-possessed is a frequent occurrence in the Gospel of Mark. Ever ask yourself why that is? Why that seems to be a central aspect of Jesus' public ministry? I think it's meant to remind us that What Jesus has come to do in establishing his kingdom extends far beyond the political, the economic, or the social realm. Now, it would be very tempting, I think, for those of us who may have lived under a time of foreign occupation to think that, yes, I could see why the Israelites wanted the Romans kicked out, the Jews wanted the Romans out of their backyard. I have ministered, early on in my ministry at least, to several people who lived during the time of Nazi occupation. Many of you have heard stories from those who lived under those circumstances. To have someone who is bent upon your destruction, exercising authority, arbitrarily, cruelly, randomly punishing even killing people. Believe me, 
you would understand why the Jews were so eager to see the Romans kicked out. This is our country, they would say. But Jesus is here to say that his ministry is far more profound than that. The kingdom he speaks of involves a spiritual realm. The battle that he is waging is not simply against the Romans, the Roman governor, the Roman army, the emperor of the Roman Empire. That pales in comparison to the real battle that he's engaging in. In other words, the picture we have here, of all places, in a synagogue, is the picture of the beginning of warfare. That's why I've entitled the sermon for this evening, The Messiah Issues His Opening Salvo. People ask me, what does that word salvo mean? I have to admit, when I first chose this uh, title, I did so out of deference to a former elder of mine who served in the Navy for a number of years. And uh, it's a good naval military term. A salvo is the opening shot from a battleship. So what you have here, picture this in your mind, that when Jesus enters the synagogue, he enters to do battle. He is going to war. He is going to war, not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Because after all, what kind of savior do we need? Not simply one who can kick the Roman army out. Not simply one who can establish an economic, uh, economic prosperity for the Jews. But someone who can conquer sin and death and hell itself. I like to think of it as similar to the old western movies. Uh, there are a number of you tonight, I'm sure, who are old enough to remember those days where it was so common to have these television shows dealing with the Wild West. And you have some outlaw who is tormenting the town. He's the bully. He has his way with the people. He gets what he wants and no one can dare stand up to him. But then, then comes the hero. And he says, that's going to be the end of that. There's a new sheriff in town. That's what we have here. Jesus announcing there is a king who has arrived. And I will not tolerate this anymore. Demon possession. Demon possession points to the fact that Satan has done his best he has done his best to distort, to ruin the good creation that God has made. He has done his best to tear God's creatures, his image bearers, away from the God who has made them. Satan is determined to oppose the Messiah. And Jesus says, I will have none of that. I will have none of that. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know the answer, of course, is yes. He has come to defeat them. And he will defeat them ultimately at the cross. 
That will be the definitive battle. But here, the opening salvo. I know who you are. The Holy One of Israel. It's believed that back in that day it was a common conviction that if a person could identify someone, his opponent, he had mastery or power over him. And perhaps this was the demon's attempt to exercise authority over Jesus. And that may be mere speculation on my part. But he certainly is aware of who Jesus is. Even if the people in the synagogue do not yet fully know who this Jesus of Nazareth is, he has tormented the man whom he possesses. Someone has written, I remember a number of years ago reading this, that demon possession perhaps is the most vivid depiction of how an image bearer of God, the image bearer of God, can be distorted, twisted, mangled, disrupted, and disturbed. He opposes. And throughout Jesus' ministry, Satan will seek to oppose. He tempts him already at the outset of his ministry. He tempts him by calling him to set aside his his calling from the Father. To feed his hunger, to test the Father, to have the dominions of the world without going to the cross. But time after time, Jesus defeats Satan. That is the authority opposed. And then finally, thirdly, you have the authority demonstrated verse 25 how does jesus defeat how does jesus conquer satan in this initial salvo he speaks he simply says be quiet by the very word of his power And we will see this throughout Mark's gospel. He doesn't engage in hand-to-hand combat. He doesn't use other weapons. He simply says, be quiet. And later on in Mark's gospel, we'll read about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Simply by saying, peace, be still. What does that remind you of? Someone who's able to control even the wind and waves, the created order, simply by his voice speaking. Does that not remind you of Genesis 1? And God spoke, and it was so. Be silent and come out of him. Boys and girls, notice carefully verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. I just want you to picture tonight for a moment, boys and girls, without trying to deliberately scare you or intimidate you. If we were there to witness that scene, I'm sure it would have been a shocking, horrifying scene. 
When you think of what demon-possessed people did in that day, they had to be chained up. They were prone to hurt themselves. They were prone to hurt others. They would throw themselves on fires. And when this demon leaves, the man's convulsing, screaming. The shrill scream, I'm certain, was horrifying. And you don't simply watch that if you're in the synagogue and say, well, that was interesting. You don't see that every Sabbath. People were amazed. They were in awe. Dare I say it, they were filled with fear and dread. Again, what kind of person is this who can cast out demons like this? Just like the disciples after the calming of the storm, it wasn't simply a sense of relief. Oh, we're not going to drown. It says, and they were filled with fear. It's as if the curtain is being opened, brothers and sisters. And for the first time, the disciples, the people, are beginning to see who this Jesus is. He is no ordinary man. He's not even simply a great prophet or teacher. He is very God, a very God, to use the language of our creeds. He is the Son of God incarnate. And Mark writes the gospel account in such a way so that when the people watch or witness this miracle, it demands of them a response. Just like tonight, it demands of you and of me a response. The people were amazed, verse 27. And they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. That may or may not indicate that they came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you understand. Do you understand that? It may very well be that they witnessed this, yet did not believe that he was the Messiah. Why do I say that? Well, we know there are many other times where Jesus performs the miraculous and the people, the people don't believe him. They grow hostile towards him. In fact, on another occasion, Jesus casts out demons and the people say, the Jewish leaders say, he must be the prince of demons. Can you imagine that? To which Jesus responds, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. If I cast out demons, why would I do that if I'm the prince of demons? And so he corrects them and says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, meaning by the power of God, then you may know that the kingdom of God has arrived. It has arrived. And it's the same question that's posed to us tonight. 
Jesus is not simply the miracle worker. He's not here simply to leave you in amazement. He demands a response. Will you believe on him? Will you trust him? It also answers that question, for what purpose did he come? You think of the catechism. What kind of a mediator must he be? He must be true God and true man. Why must he be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, by the power of his being God, he can overcome death. And he must be true man because he must pay for man's sin. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So brothers and sisters, have you taken note this evening of this opening salvo? The coming of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for us. What it means for the promise of salvation. There are plenty of people who believe that Jesus is a tremendous teacher and preacher. Kind and compassionate, loving. He was committed to his cause even to the point of death. And those are all true. And yet, they are not enough to bring us our salvation. He must come with the very power of God. And just as he cast out this demon, so he will conquer the devil at the cross and beyond. Recognize his authority. See how it's being opposed even now, but it is a fruitless battle. Satan will not win. And remember the demonstration of that power, not only here with the casting out of the demon, but at the cross. With what authority does our Savior come to bring the kingdom to bear upon our lives and upon the world? For his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless this word we pray to our hearts so that we may take confidence in the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ to know that the one who has tormented us and mankind for so many centuries, for the entire course of human history with the fear of death has now been overcome through our Savior and Lord. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.